it's good to be let out of my undisclosed secure location as the designated survivor to meet with you this morning. Father Alex and I try to avoid coming into contact with each other so that uh, if one of us gets sick, one of us can show up. I don't know if that means, Father Bob, that you're expendable or... I don't, I don't think that word came up in the conversation, but... Well, in our gospel lesson this morning, we were led to one message. We find three events that lead us to one conclusion. And that conclusion is that Jesus is Lord. And that lordship is revealed in three events. One almost incidental, you have to do a little bit of digging to see it. One completely and remarkably supernatural, and one tacked on almost as an afterthought. So let's look at these three events and see what they say about Jesus and what response they call for from us. Last week, if you were here or like me, were watching online, Father Christopher took us through the passage just before this one. And so you'll remember, I'm sure, what happened was that Jesus had supernaturally fed 5,000 men along with women and children, more than 5,000 people, with five loaves of bread and two fish. Verse 21, the verse right before our reading, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. And then starts our reading today. Immediately, Jesus made, and the Greek word here is even stronger, it's compelled, it's forced to compel them to go. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, does any of that strike you as odd? There's this great miracle and then immediately, as if there's some kind of sudden emergency, suddenly he sends the crowd away. Suddenly he orders the disciples to get out of there, to get on their boats at night, to go on out to the Sea of Galilee in bad weather. Suddenly there's a need for him to be absolutely alone with his father on top of the mountain in prayer. And so something is going on here. And if you read the account of the same event in John's gospel, you find out what's going on. John six fourteen. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, feeding 5,000 people, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. That was the emergency. A crowd of 5,000 men wanted to make Jesus king. They were planning to march on Jerusalem. They wanted Jesus to serve their agenda. They wanted Jesus to fit in with and bless their plans. But immediately we learn that Jesus is Lord. He orders the disciples to leave, and then he dismisses the crowd. Because if anyone thinks they can get Jesus to serve their agenda to fit in and bless their plans, he dismisses them. Because Jesus doesn't relate to us on our terms. He didn't come into the world to negotiate what kind of deal he would give us. He serves no one else's agenda, no one else's agenda except for his Father's in heaven. And that's why immediately he heads up to the mountain to pray. Presumably he would pray something similar to what he taught us to pray. My Father in heaven your kingdom come. Because that's Jesus' agenda, not setting up a kingdom for these 5,000 followers. He came to bring people back into God's kingdom, 
that is to bring us back into relationship with God as our king, a relationship that lasts through death and into the world to come. And he did that by dying on the cross so we could be forgiven for rejecting God as our rightful king and start life over again with God in his rightful place as our king. That's Jesus' agenda. And what this passage tells us is that Jesus is Lord. We either submit to his agenda, like the disciples did, obey him, or we get dismissed, like the crowd. We'll either submit to Jesus or be dismissed from him. So what does submitting to his agenda look like? Well, Jesus gives us his parting agenda in Matthew chapter 28. We call it the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's his agenda. His agenda is that we would know him and make him known. And that's all that is of ultimate importance, that we know Jesus and make him known. Jesus is Lord, and that means we submit to his agenda. The second event that tells us Jesus is Lord. Jesus has ordered the disciples away in their boat, and he's prayed for long enough that the boat is well out on the Sea of Galilee. In verse 23, when evening came, he was there alone on top of the mountain. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, that starts at three o'clock in the morning and ends at uh, dawn. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So when evening came, he's up on the mountain. It's three o'clock in the morning, he begins walking out to them on the sea. I've had an interesting background, I guess. I grew up in a fundamentalist home, in a fundamentalist church. Fundamentalism, by the way, is not a theological curse word. It's an actual thing, okay? It's an actual body of belief with leaders and institutions and all of that. Went to a fundamentalist college for uh, a year and a half. Uh, Then I ended up at the University of West Florida with a double major in philosophy and religion where I studied theological liberalism. And that's not a theological curse word either. That's a real thing with institutions and leaders and a set of beliefs and all that kind of stuff. Um, My two favorite religion professors at uh, UWF were Dallas Blanchard and Monty Montcastle. Dallas Blanchard taught me New Testament Greek, and because there are only two students at UWF taking New Testament Greek, we met in his office where he smoked cigarettes and sipped bourbon. (laughs) The bourbon may explain why my Greek's not very good. Kids freak out when I tell them, my teacher used to smoke in their office with me. I had professors who brought ashtrays to, to classroom with them. I mean, this is a whole nother world, okay. Um, Monty Montcastle was another teacher of mine. He was the second youngest uh, Navy combat pilot in World War II after the first President Bush. Um, both of them good men and good teachers. I learned a great deal from them. Um, but the, here's how Monty's take on the story was, okay? So Jesus is up on the mountain. This is the theological liberal take, okay? Jesus is up on the mountain, and he sees his friends in the boat down there, and they're stuck in the storm. But Jesus also now sees there's a sandbar that goes out right to where the boat is. And so Jesus walks out on the sandbar, and Peter gets all excited and jumps out of the boat, but he doesn't know where the sandbar is, right? And so uh, Jesus has to reach down and pull him up onto the sandbar. And that's what really happened. The disciples, you see, they saw this and they thought it was a miracle. 
how they got from the sandbar to the boat without swimming again, I don't know. But that was, that was the, the explanation. And if you're just investigating the Christian faith, you may be saying something when you read the story like, um, you know, human beings can't walk on water. Therefore, this didn't really happen. But all you've done is beg the question. You've assumed that Jesus is a human being like us and nothing more. When he himself claimed that he was the son of God, he's God's son who became a human being, which is what he claimed. You can't dismiss the evidence by simply begging the question and assuming the conclusion in in the premise. God who created nature has authority over nature. And many miracles, when you think about them, are simply natural phenomena that are removed from time and natural processes. Um, you know, when you think about it, water turns to wine all the time. It's called a grapevine. Rainwater soaks into the roots, comes up to the grape. Yeast forms on the skin of the grape. When you break the grape, the skin, the yeast, and the sugar get together and make wine. When you remove that process from the grapevine process in time, you, well, actually, water turns to wine all the time. People walk on water all the time. We call it ice skating. You see, God's the God over time and nature. Jesus is God in the flesh, the Lord of the universe. With control over time and control over natural processes, well, many of these miracles, in fact, can be seen. What did Jesus do? Did he freeze a little footstep ahead of him? I don't know. I speak as a fool. I don't know. I'll never be able to figure that out, right? Right. But you know, you're kind of puzzled by the process. You know, there's there's, there's more to hear than just a just a miracle story. There's a, a process that Jesus goes through. Does he consciously solidify molecules? I mean, I don't know. Again, yeah, I'm being foolish, okay? But uh, but um, it's just interesting. It's interesting. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, "It's a ghost," and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And here we see a beautiful truth. Jesus isn't a ghost, it's Jesus. The power behind the scene of the universe, responsible for the way things are in your in your in my life right now. The power behind the scenes is not some nameless, faceless, unknown, unpredictable, maybe good, maybe evil force or spirit but it's Jesus. That's why in verse 27 he says, it's I, don't be afraid. And he's not saying don't be afraid of the storm. He's specifically saying don't be afraid of me. I'm not some unknown, unpredictable, ghostly power, but it's I, the person who called you and committed himself to you. And from our perspective, after his death and resurrection, we could add the person who gave up his life for you on the cross. That's who the ultimate power behind the scene of the universe is. And therefore, we know that he's good. And we know that he'll harness his power to do us good. Even if we can't perceive exactly how he's being good to us through circumstances right now. I love all of what Paul says in Romans 8, not just the part that ends up on the refrigerator magnet, but the whole paragraph that starts off, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's usually where the refrigerator magnet stops. That in itself is pretty much meaningless. 
That gives you the idea that life is like a big blender and you have good stuff and you pour the good stuff in. You have bad stuff, you pour the bad stuff in. But when you push the button and it all whirls together, then you pour out the milkshake and it turns out to be good. And that's just, that's just absolutely foolishness. What does Paul say? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But what is that purpose? It's the next sentence. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. All things work together for good because they conform us to the image of Christ. That there's a process behind the chaos and confusion and pain and hurt of life. And that's being conformed to the image of Christ. And that process is in the hand of a good and loving God. And so all these things work together for good when we receive them to inform us to the image of Christ, when we face chaos, confusion, and pain, and hurt, if we say, Father, make me more like Jesus, use this to make me more like Jesus, then all those things work together for good. Now, this is something we can know intellectually, but what happens when our faith falters? Well, that's what the rest of the story is about. Peter says, looks out, sees what he thinks is a ghost. The ghost says, the, the image, the person, says, it's I, don't be afraid. And Peter says, Lord, if it is you, let me walk on the water too. Huh. What in the world? It would never have dawned on me to say, if it's really you, Jesus, let me walk on the water too. I'm not sure I'd be thinking enough to say, if it's really you, Jesus, can you calm the storm? I mean, that would be a little bit helpful. Not walk on the water, but... Jesus says, okay, come on. Jesus probably said, huh, too. Well, okay, come on. Peter steps out in faith, but he's distracted by the winds and he sinks. When I was growing up, I thought the Bible was a book about me. And it took me a long time to find out the Bible isn't about me, it's about Jesus. I thought it was a book of a bunch of stuff I had to do so I could get a relationship with Jesus. And then I found out it's a book about what Jesus did to build a relationship with me. It's not primarily what I have to do to have a relationship with Jesus, although it does tell me that. It's primarily about what Jesus did to have a relationship with me. And under that older view, that would lead me to a, a strong conclusion like this. My conclusion would be we need to be better Christians. Certainly we need to be better Christians than Peter was. We need to have a lot more faith, and so we need to really work on building up our faith. Now, of course, that's true, but it's not the big point of the story. The big point of the story isn't about me and what I need to do. The point of the story is about Jesus and what Jesus did. And the point of the story is that when our faith falters, Jesus doesn't go away. When our faith fades, Jesus, isn't, Jesus is there. When our doubts rise up, Jesus is there to take our hand and lift us out of danger. When fear overtakes our faith, Jesus is still there. Jesus doesn't dissolve into a ghostly figure and fade away, but he reaches down, takes us by the hand, and lifts us out of danger. Jesus doesn't say, sorry, Peter, you didn't have enough faith. Start swimming. No, he reaches down, grabs Peter by the hand, lifts him out of danger, Instead, gives a rebuke full of love 
Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Of course it's a rebuke, and we can't pass that by. Don't be mistaken. My point is not that we don't need faith. Okay, that isn't my point. My point is that Jesus does not abandon us to our doubts. How do we increase our faith? It's very simple. We ask for more. It's not something you work up by like, aiming at your, your thoughts, at your heart, and like working, trying to work up your faith. That's what I call Disney faith. If you just believe hard enough, it'll work. And how do you do that? How do you, how do, you do that? I don't have any idea. Fortunately, we don't have to sit there and kind of compress our abdominal muscles until we get enough faith to do something. How do we increase our faith? We ask for more. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's from Mark 9. A father brings a a, a child to Jesus who's demon-possessed, and he describes the, the terrible situation this child is in. And father says, if you can, can you help him? Jesus says, what do you mean if I can? If you have faith, we can accomplish anything here. And maybe you remember what the father says. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I come back to that an awful lot in my life. I believe. Help my unbelief. And guess what? In those moments, Jesus is there to reach down the hand and lift you out of danger. This thought that the way to get more faith is to ask for more faith shouldn't be new to us. In fact, I told you that before the sermon even started because that's in the collect for today. It's the first line, Almighty God, give us the increase of faith. And the third event, which is tacked on almost like an afterthought, Jesus is Lord because he brings peace. Almost as an afterthought to the story, the storm calms down. Just in a few words, the storm calms down. He brings peace in the storm just as he's promised to bring peace to the entire world. And then notice that the disciples worship Jesus. And they, for the first time, call him the Son of God. And that should be our response. May the Lord strengthen our faith, bring us peace, and bless our worship this day. In Jesus' name, amen.